Armchair Detectives. I'm Ashlyn, and you're listening to Mass Murder. Today, I'm covering the unsolved cases of two young girls who were abducted and murdered. A trigger warning about this episode, there are mentions of violence against children, sexual assault, details of what happened to the victims, and suicide mentions. With that being said, let's dive in. Holly Peranian was born on January 19, 1983 in Grafton, Massachusetts. On August 5, 1993, when Holly was just 10 years old, she and her family took a vacation at her grandparents' cottage in Sturbridge, Massachusetts. It was just the second day that they had been there when Holly had heard that one of her neighbor's dogs had had puppies and she wanted to go and see them. Accompanied by her five-year-old younger brother, Zachary, they left the cottage around 11.45 a.m. to walk down the street to see the puppies. Just a little while later, only Zachary returned home. Some sources say he had been scared by another neighbor's dog and others see Zachary said Holly had just told him to go home. Holly's dad, Richard, sent Zachary and their older brother, Andrew, to go get Holly, but by the time they got there, she was gone. Richard went out to walk the path himself and also drove around, but he could not find her. What he did find was one of her red sneakers that she was wearing when she had left. Just about an hour later, at 12.50 p.m., Richard calls the police to report Holly missing. Immediately, this sets off the search of the area. Police did not know if she had been abducted or if she had just run away or gotten lost. However, to her family, the red sneaker was a clue. The week before, Holly had attended a camp, and one of the counselors had told the children that if they were ever taken, they should try and leave something behind. Nothing else was found in the area. That weekend, the search continued. Canines were brought by the Connecticut State Police, divers searched the nearby pond, and helicopters flew overhead. Authorities interviewed locals, questioned sex offenders in the area, and fielded over 100 tips on her whereabouts. Holly's family also put up missing flyers around town. On August 11, 1993, Holly's case was featured on America's Most Wanted, but nothing came from it right away. Eventually, the searches were called off. On September 7, 1993, a woman reported that she saw a child fitting Holly's description on the New York State Thruway. The car was being driven by a white man with brown hair, a bushy mustache, and buggy eyes. They exited in Waterloo, New York. The Seneca County Sheriff checked motels, state parks, and roads, but did not find Holly. Again, her case went cold until just over a month later. On August 23, 1993, two months after her disappearance, Holly Peranian's remains were found in the woods in Brimfield, Massachusetts by two hunters, just five miles from where she had disappeared. No cause of death was officially released, and very little information about this case has been reported. That being said, authorities and locals believed that this crime was one of opportunity, as Holly's family had only arrived at the cottage the day before. Not many people knew they were there. More people began to believe that whoever committed this heinous crime just happened to be in the area and decided to abduct Holly when they saw her walking down the street. That is, until June 2000. 
Molly Bish was born on August 2nd, 1983, in Warren, Massachusetts. In the summer of 2000, 16-year-old Molly got a job working as a lifeguard at nearby Commons Pond in Warren. On June 27, 2000, Molly was woken up early by her mother, who informed her that one of her friends was involved in an accident and was in the hospital. I couldn't find how to pronounce her mother's name, but I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Maggie. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Now, Maggie offered for Molly to call into work and to go to the hospital, but Molly refused. She had just started her job eight days earlier, and that day was the first day of swimming lessons. She felt she needed to go. So at 9.50 a.m., Molly and Maggie stopped at a convenience store on the way to pick up a few water bottles for Molly. At 9.56 a.m., Molly checked in at the local police department to pick up the two-way radio she needed for her shift. Then, at 9.58 a.m., Maggie dropped Molly off at the pond. Molly headed down to her station, and Maggie drove off. At 10.20 a.m., a local woman named Sandra Woodworth showed up at the pond with her kids for swimming lessons. At the lifeguard station, there was an opened first aid kit, Molly's backpack, a towel, whistle, sandals, and a water bottle. However, Molly was nowhere to be seen. After having waited for a little while and there still being no sign of Molly, Woodworth reported Molly's absence to her boss, Ed Fett, the park commissioner. Now, I am unsure of how long Woodworth waited before reporting her absence or if Fett waited after being alerted, but at 11.44 a.m., Fett radioed the police using Molly's radio to report her absence. The police showed up but found no signs of a struggle and just assumed she left to hang out with friends. It was over three hours later when the police finally called Molly's mom. Maggie did not believe that Molly just up and left her shift. Molly had been given that option that morning and turned it down, and after reaching out to many of Molly's friends who had not seen or talked to her, police began to believe Maggie. The Massachusetts State Police took over and began to search the surrounding areas but found nothing. Police suspected that whoever abducted Molly knew Commons Pond well, and knew of Molly's schedule as she had been only working at the pond for eight days. This made Maggie remember and believe that she may have seen the man who abducted her daughter the day before. When she dropped Molly off the morning before, as she had been, she noticed that there was a man sitting alone in a white car in the parking lot. She noticed his attention was focused on Molly. Feeling uneasy, Maggie waited in the parking lot for 20 minutes until the man drove away. Witnesses in the area confirmed they had seen a suspicious man in a white car in the parking lot, as well as a nearby cemetery. However, the police could not identify the man, and Molly's case soon went cold as well. Almost three years later, in May 2003, a piece of cloth that looked like a blue swimsuit was found in a wooded area that was only known to local hunters. After testing, it was confirmed that it was a piece of the swimsuit Molly had been wearing the day she disappeared. This sparked a ground search of that area. Just a month later, on June 3, 2003, 26 bones were found near where the bathing suit was in Palmer, Massachusetts. More specifically, in Whiskey Hills, just five miles from Commons Pond. They could not determine the cause of death. And again, this is where Molly's case went cold for a while. 
In 2014, across the road from where Molly's remains were found, a bag was found buried under a log. Inside that bag was a pair of plaid shorts that looked very similar to the ones Molly had been wearing when she disappeared. However, I could not find if these shorts were ever tested or proven to definitely have been Molly's. And again, the case went cold for another three years until 2017. The Bish family ended up hiring a private investigator named Sarah Stein. Stein put out a statement to the surrounding area saying if anyone had any sort of tip, big or small, to contact her. Stein ended up receiving a tip that a car very similar to the one Maggie had seen the day before Molly's abduction was buried in a former campground site in Brookfield. Police used radar after getting that tip from Stein to search for the car and even found compelling anomalies. Volunteers went to the area, but it was not considered part of the official search and nothing else has come from it. Molly's case is still open. So now that I've told you the stories of both Holly and Molly, let's talk about the similarities between the two cases. Obviously, their names are very similar and rhyme. They both had blonde hair and blue eyes. They were abducted from around the same area, just about 10 miles apart from one another, and they were both found in a wooded area. While these two cases are not officially considered linked by investigators, many locals believe they could be because of one detail that is very curious. When Holly went missing in 1993, Molly was almost 10 years old. Holly's case quickly became well-known locally. A pastor in a nearby town put out a plea to his community to support their Peranians through well-wishes and other forms of communication. This caused none other than Molly Bish of nearby Warren, Massachusetts to send them a letter. It read, I am very sorry. I wish I could make it up to you. Holly is a very pretty girl. She is almost as tall as me. I wish I knew Holly. I hope they found her. While this does not prove a direct link between the two girls, the number of similarities could be an M.O. for whoever committed these crimes. The only critical anomaly between the two is that Holly was 10 when she was taken, and Molly was 16. Speaking of whoever committed these crimes, let's talk about persons of interest. There are two in Holly's case, two in Molly's case, and actually one that is shared between them. First, Holly Peranian. The first person of interest in her case is a man named Randy Stanger. At the time of Holly's murder, he was living in a tent in the woods of Brimfield where Holly was found. Other than that, there is not a lot of information about Randy. Zachary, Holly's brother, kept saying he had flashbacks of a man's face, but couldn't place the face. Eventually, a sketch was able to be produced that looked pretty similar to Randy, but that's not enough to convict someone on. The next person of interest is David Poulier. Poulier was connected to Holly's murder because an item found at the crime scene was connected to him. Hampton County Attorney Mark Mastrani said the nature and character of the item tested, as well as its condition and location upon discovery, suggests Mr. Poulier and or persons associated with him were in the immediate crime scene area at a time relevant to Holly's disappearance and the location of her remains. However, by the time that this was discovered, Poulier had already died of congestive heart failure in 2003. 
There is one person of interest in both cases that is the same. That is Gerald Battistani. When it was announced that he was being looked into, he was in jail for raping a teenager in the 90s. The mother of the victim was a real estate agent who had a home for rent with her name on the sign in the yard near the cottage Holly's family was staying at. Battistoni's second wife said that on the day that Molly disappeared, he had taken their car, a white Chevy, and was driving in the Warren area. It was found that he looked like the composite sketch that Maggie had given details for. After being named a suspect, Battistoni attempted suicide in 2011 and subsequently died in prison in 2014. Recently, the Hampton DA exhumed a man's body in connection to Holly's case. They said it is not David Poulier, but they have not released the identity of the man. Moving on to the persons of interest in Molly's case. One person of interest is an unnamed man whom multiple tips came in about. He was a camper staying at a campground in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, only a few miles from where Molly was taken. Witnesses said he was not on the campground the entire day that Molly disappeared. The next day, he showed up with scratches and blood on his face and was yelling about something happening in the woods the night before. Six months after these tips came in, he was heard bragging about being a person of interest in the case, but had not been interviewed. The next person of interest in Molly's case, and the last one I'll mention in this episode, is Rodney Stanger, the brother of Randy Stanger, who, if you remember, was a person of interest in Holly's case. Rodney was a hunter in Palmer, Massachusetts, more specifically in the exact forest where Molly's remains were found. He lived just a few blocks away from the YMCA where Molly had taken classes to become a lifeguard. Just a year after Molly's murder, Rodney moved to Florida. In Florida, in 2008, he was convicted for the murder of his ex-girlfriend, Crystal Morrison. Crystal's sister called in with a tip that in a conversation before she died, Crystal had hinted that Rodney was involved with both Molly and Holly's cases. Also, when Crystal's sister went to Florida to pick up her sister's belongings, she found barrettes, hairbands, and other personal effects that tend to be associated with girls, and not 50-year-old women like her sister was. Witnesses would say they saw a man who matched Stanger's description in the pond parking lot right before Molly and her mom showed up. Another person reported seeing a similar car parked at the cemetery down the street from the pond. However, DNA testing came back inconclusive. He is still in prison today and denies any involvement with Molly's murder. Anyone who thinks they may know something about these two cases is encouraged to call the Massachusetts State Police Detective Unit at 413-505-5993. You can also text a tip by texting 274637 and typing SOLVE followed by the tip. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Mass Murder. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and follow us on Instagram at the Mass Murder Podcast to see photos from these cases. Keep updated on future episodes and comment to let me know who you think killed Molly or Holly. I'm your host, Ashlyn. Stay safe and remember, don't commit mass murder. <laughs>